0: You're listening to the Common Descent Podcast. Hello, Will. Hello, David. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Common Descent Podcast. This is episode 158. This episode, we are talking about Charles R. Knight. Famous paleo artist, super famous paleo artist, artist of ancient animals and other stuff.
1: Yeah, this person does a lot of stuff.
0: And happy Darwin Day, everybody. This episode comes out shortly before Darwin Day, February 12th, and we have a bit of a tradition for Darwin Day, doing episodes about historical figures, which started with Darwin himself and then we just kept doing it. Yep. In this episode, we will discuss the life and works of Like I said, famed paleo artist, one of the big reasons why paleo art, as we know it, exists. Yeah. Thanks to this person, you have almost certainly seen his art, and even if you have somehow managed to not see his art, you have seen tropes started by his art. Mm -hmm. So we'll talk about who this guy was, what his life was like, what sort of stuff he did, and why he was so important in the history of paleo art. All that and more once we get into the main discussion This episode topic, like all of our episode topics, was requested. This subject was requested by Melissa. Good suggestion. Thanks, Melissa. And before we move on, a few announcements. Hey, we really like doing this science education work that we do. And if you really like our science education work and want to support it, you can support us on Patreon. Patrons on our Patreon, you can find a link in the episode description, get all sorts of goodies, like bonus content and director's notes and live streams, opportunities to interact with us. And at a certain level of patronage, patrons get their names shouted out on the podcast. This episode, we're shouting out Claire, Aaron, and Greg. Welcome and thank you. Welcome and thank you. Uh, Please consider the rest of you supporting us on Patreon. And hey, if you want to interact with us or support us in other ways, there's other ways to do it. You can go down to the episode description and find links to our social media. You can find a link to our Discord server, which we recently passed 500 members. (gasps) We did? On our Discord, we sure did. Is that a big number for a Discord
1: server? It seems big to me. (laughs) Big number for our Discord it's, that's server. That's the biggest our Discord server's ever been. <laughs> it's, uh, no Discord server that owned by us has ever been bigger. That is true. This is a
0: record uh, for this one Discord server. On the Discord, there's all sorts of chats going on all the time with art and science and speculative evolution. And we do live Q&As on there every month. Uh, so consider checking that out. Also, we have a merch store. Also linked in the episode description at Zazzle, where you can get shirts and stuff. Those are a few of the ways you can support us. <laughs> Check out stuff in the episode description or on our blog, uh, which is also linked down in the episode description. Oh, and hey, one of the things you'll find down in the episode description is a physical mailing address in case you want to send us mail. We just recently received a lovely letter from Bethany.
1: Yeah, it was really sweet. Very,
0: and we and we we loved it. We, we thank you so mm-hmm. much. We always like receiving mail.
1: Yay. Yeah.
0: Hey, here's a neat thing. Last year for Darwin Day, listeners may remember that we did an episode about the Leakeys with special guest Meredith Johnson, who is the host of Origin Stories, the Leakey Foundation podcast, uh, which I love. Such a good podcast. We were very excited to have Meredith join us. Well, it turns out that the Leakey Foundation recently, a few months ago, came out with a new series of cool human evolution stories. In audio format, and they reached out to us to ask if we would promote the series for them. And we said, absolutely. Origin Stories is great, and Leaky Foundation is great. So happily. So here's a promo for you. In the past 50 years, researchers have made extraordinary discoveries that have helped us understand who we are, where we come from, and what makes us human. In Discovering Us, that's the name of the new series... Actor Ashley Judd brings our shared history to life, exploring the human story from our evolutionary roots to our uncertain future. This short series celebrates science, exploration, and the search for what it means to be human. Discovering Us is an audio companion to the book Discovering Us, 50 Great Discoveries in Human Origins, written for the Leakey Foundation by Evan Haddingham, senior science editor for the award-winning PBS series Nova. Listen to Discovering Us on Apple, Spotify, Or wherever you get your podcasts, we encourage you uh, to check it out.
1: Absolutely.
0: Uh, Always. Well, and it's a cool uh, thing to point our listeners over to because we don't do a whole lot of talking about human origins and human history and human evolution. Yeah,
1: we did our episodes. We did episodes (laughs) on it
0: and it comes up in the news and it, you know, comes up here and there in different episodes. Obviously, the Leakies episode it came up in, but that's not our primary focus, So if we have listeners who are hungry for more content along those lines, Origin Stories and Discovering Us, great places to find it.
1: Yeah, that's exciting.
0: And we'll throw a link in the episode description so you can check it out. Well, that's enough announcements. Let's move on to the news. Every episode we like to start with a section about the news, recent news in paleontology evolution-related scientific studies, keeps everybody up to date, will regale us with some news.
1: My first bit of news is about some primate-esque mammals found in the Arctic Circle, some fossils.
0: Oh, right. I wrote the press release for this, (laughs) and I didn't recognize it on the news list, and I realized it the other day when I was submitting invoices.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Nice. (laughs) This is a neat finding. They found some primate cousins up in the Arctic Circle from when it was much warmer there. And this is the first time we found mammals like that, that far north. Yeah, I'm so excited to hear about this because I forgot what this study is about. Excellent. This is research by Kristen Miller, Kristen Tetchen, and Christopher Beard in PLOS One. And the article is by Brian Hendwerk in Smithsonian Mag. Hey, that link to that article, as always, will be in the blog post. So the environment that they are studying is from the Cenozoic. It is about 52 million years old, so it's in the Eocene. This is up in Canada on Ellesmere Island, and it represents what was at that time a boreal forest, a temperate ecosystem that is now north of the Arctic Circle. Right. But it is it's slightly different from what it is oh right yeah. now. <laughs> <laughs> Where that environment is impossible today. During this time, it was warm enough that there were, as they put it, lush cypress swamps, and thermophilic taxa were common. So warm-loving animals, crocodiles, tortoises, taper-like creatures. Mm -hmm. And also lots of warmer plants, hence the boreal forest. They had redwoods and cypresses, but also elms, alders, birches, and sycamores. Just tons of forest trees and plants growing in a lush forest way up north. This research, though, is focusing on two new species that were described from this locale, which are lemur-like creatures, early primatomorphs, from the genus Ignatius. So these are primate cousins. Yeah, so they're not... not, quite primates, but pretty close. Yeah, exactly. They're not even actually lemurs, you know, which are the basalmost group of primates today. These are close, similar to lemurs, but not actually within the primate group, but... It's the closest thing to primates we've ever gotten from this far north, especially from this age. They described two species of this genus, Ignatius mckenai and Ignatius docenae. They were about the size of a small cat or rabbit, so these are not large animals. They both seem to be close relatives to each other. They're in the same genus, but they seem to be sister taxa, so they likely came from the same ancestor that colonized Ellesmere Island sometime earlier, probably from further south in North America. Right, which is where we have a lot of other primate cousins that are known from this continent. Exactly. That's one of the things that makes these two stand out, is not only are they very far north primates, but we have other representatives of this group and their cousins from farther south. They're very common but up north, not so. This is a little lineage that snuck their way up there. Which to the researchers indicated that there must have been something that allowed them to break into the north since we don't see any of the other primatomorph groups do it. So they were thinking of what could be the thing that set them apart or allowed them to survive here. Uh, One option that was put forth is hibernating, some sort of rest through the winter, because even though it was warmer back then, you would have still had long periods without light. But this is very rare among primates. The article said that only the fat-tailed dwarf lemur uh, uh, is one of the only ones that shows hibernation of any sort, hmm. to write out the uh, dry season in Madagascar. Another difference they did note with these Ellesmere Ignatius species is that they were larger than other Ignatius groups in other uh, further south latitudes, which means they follow Bergman's rule, and they did a study looking at 3D models of the teeth of these species and 95 other living and fossil primates and found that they had a unique dentition and jaw structure that would have allowed them for eating much harder food. So they had stronger teeth and jaws for taking on tougher material, things like nuts and seeds, and their jawbone would have allowed for a higher bite force to crack those open, and they... Propose that this could have been one of the things that might have helped them survive that far north during those long periods without sun when the plants aren't going to be growing as much and you might not have access to the fruits or normal foods that you typically would be eating or want to be eating. These strong jaws and tough teeth could allow them to eat what they called fallback foods, backup food sources through the winter. Right. The stuff
0: that you normally don't want to have to eat because it's difficult to eat or maybe you eat less nutritious to eat, but you kind of need to if you're in an area where you don't have good food available for a good chunk of the year.
1: Yeah, basically it's the hard tack of the yes. <laughs> of the nor- the far north and this would mean that this could be one of the reasons they were able to survive those harsher times, that weird northern light schedule and would indicate if this is how they were surviving the winters that they weren't hibernating, that they were eating through the winter. Oh, well, that's true. Yeah, that you're feeding on tough food. And so that special dentition might be part of what allowed this, so far, two species to break that far into the north. One thing that I remember, now that I've
0: been reminded what this study is about, one thing that I remember <laughs> from the paper is that they talk about what this means, you know, whenever we're looking at ecosystems in the past from a dramatically different climate, especially a warmer climate it can apply to our understanding of what is happening or what might happen with climate change. And one of the things that I remember them pointing out is that finding these primate relatives up north is unusual and there's much more primate cousin diversity elsewhere in North America and that that apparently that part is not surprising because that's true with a lot of the species that they find in that ecosystem, that there is much lower diversity in that northern ecosystem than down south, which they pointed out might be an indication that even with warmer climates, that's not a guarantee that everything that is farther south will be able to move to the north. That there are still barriers that limit dispersal. So even when the world gets warmer or colder, it's not just a matter of temperature determining who can move north or south and in this case it could be food availability mm-hmm. which might be related to light because it doesn't matter what you do with the climate when you go far north you start running out of light at parts of the year
1: yeah it just it is fundamentally different at the far northern and southern portions of our planet yes and we talked about that in mm-hmm. our polar life episode episode 114 so when we think about north to
0: south, we often think of temperature as the obvious sort of differentiator, but there are other factors.
1: Absolutely. And they did note that they, for some of the creatures, they don't have any answers for why they seem to be doing well on this island versus other places. Like the tapir creature evidently were doing very well there, but not as common in the mid latitudes. Hmm. And then horses, which were very common this time, none of them had made it up into there yet. So... It it is still not clear which why it works for some and doesn't for others. Right, different species,
0: different groups might experience different barriers. Exactly. Very cool findings. Well, my first bit of news is also about a new fossil discovery. This one is a Sicilian. Ooh. Yeah, uh, some of you out there are saying, "A uh, what?" <laughs> you hey, just you wait. <laughs> this is research by Ben Kligman at all in the journal Nature. And we will link in the blog post to an article in Science Alert by Claire Watson. Amphibians are a thing that exists today. There are three major groups of amphibians. Frogs, salamanders, and the mysterious third group, which are known as sicilians. These are it's worm-shaped. They are, all, they are called vermiform. Yeah. Worm-shaped. They are long. They look like worms. They're very small. They're limbless. They are burrowers, and you have probably never seen one because they live in the soil and they're very hard to find and they're very tiny. But they are super weird and super cool, and their ancient history is not very well understood. All modern amphibians, all three of those groups, are classified in a group called Lysamphibia. Frogs and salamanders are in a group called Betrachia, and then Sicilians are in Gymnophiona. The origins of modern amphibians have been much debated. Specifically, there has been disagreement about which group of early tetrapods our modern amphibians arose from. There is a lot of recent evidence that uh, a lot of researchers seem to be in agreement on that suggests that our amphibians arose from a group of temnospondyls. These, this is one of the groups of early amphibian-like creatures. Uh, specifically, the disorophoid. Temnospondyls. I also don't know what that word means, but that's the <laughs> particular group of Temnospondyls. There was a fossil discovered not too long ago, Gerobatrachus, the frogamander, that linked frogs and salamanders to that particular group of Temnospondyls. Yep, yep. But Sicilians, our little wormy friends, have been a real puzzle. They're so different from the other sal- uh, frogs and salamanders that it's hard to compare. And there is almost no fossil record. According to this study, there are only 11 known fossil species of Sicilians. Wow. Very, very little. So this has left a big puzzle in trying to figure out when they showed up. And a question that has been asked, are they even close to the other amphibians? It has been suggested at certain points that Sicilians may have even arose separately. That They might not even be all that close to our other frogs and salamanders. They might be their own thing. Genetic studies suggest that Sicilians and Batrachians, the other amphibians, split somewhere in the Carboniferous Permian uh, time range. But the oldest known Sicilian fossils are Eosicilia from the Jurassic, which leaves a nice big gap between when they show up in the fossil record and when DNA tells us they should have been there. Enter this study, which presents the oldest known fossil Sicilian. This new species comes from the Chinle Formation of Arizona, specifically Petrified Forest National Park, dating to the late Triassic 220 million years ago or so, making it about 35 million years older than the previous oldest known Sicilians. Not only that... This place is full of Sicilians. Oh, wow. They mentioned that there are at least 76 individuals represented by various pieces of jaws, uh, body. There is even at least one femur that was discovered uh, among these fossils. Weird. Which is notable because, like I said, modern (laughs) Sicilians do not have legs. Uh, That makes this the most abundant uh, Sicilian-included fossil locality that we know of. Awesome. Very cool. The new species has been named Funkus Vermus Gilmorei. <laughs> now, if you're thinking that that sounds like a funny name, uh, Funkus Vermus literally uh, means funky worm, <laughs> and it is named quote in honor of the 1972 Funky Worm from the album Pleasure by the Ohio Players. <laughs> I don't know what any of that is, um, but that's pretty fun. Funkus Vermus, <laughs> our new Sicilian, uh, they noted has an interesting mixture of features. For one thing. They have a number of features that are shared with frogs and salamanders, that lineage, and those disorophoid temnospondyls, which are the ones thought to have been the progenitors of frogs and salamanders, which does lend support to the idea that Sicilians are part of that same lineage, that they are, in fact, side by side with frogs and salamanders descended from these same particular temnospondyls. Another thing they noticed is that funcus vermis... <laughs> seems to lack a bunch of features that we expect to see in burrowers. Ooh. So, for example, compared with modern Sicilians, this fossil species, they have relatively large eyes. They do not have, they are missing a hole or divot in the face that we see in modern Sicilians, which marks the location of their tentacles.
1: Oh, yeah. So
0: here's the thing about modern Sicilians. They have these little tentacular organ on their face that they use for sensing, which is thought to be very helpful for getting around underground where you can't see. Mm-hmm. this Like little antennae. This seems to lack that. And also, as I mentioned, at least one femur. <laughs> as for when I was reading the paper, they mentioned at least one femur. So it seems that Sicilians this early on at least this Sicilian does not appear to have been as burrowing adapted as modern Sicilians.
1: Whoa. Uh, which
0: might tell us something about when they developed that habit.
1: Absolutely, yeah. Uh,
0: and then there was one other really interesting note that I thought was really fun. Uh, so this locality in Arizona at the time, during the late Triassic, was near the equator. Which is interesting because according to the paper, all known Sicilian fossils have been found in fossil sites that at that time were near the equator. And also all living Sicilians are found within 30 degrees of the equator. As of right now, it seems every living or fossil species of Sicilian is from the tropics. (laughs) Which could be... Now, we have a very scant fossil record, Mm -hmm. but how wonderfully bizarre would it be to have a whole group that has only ever lived yeah. in like a narrow 60 degree band in the central part of the earth. Weird. Yeah. So it's the oldest known Sicilian, which means everything about it is new and exciting.
1: Oh, yes, absolutely. And for such a weird group, it is It is always a, a big deal when we get some brand new information. Uh, it is Hilarious that it is so unsicilian, like in so many ways. Yeah, <laughs> like that's really interesting. I love when we find
0: the an early early member of a thing, and we go, "That's an early turtle," and you go, "No, yeah, no, that that's, that doesn't have half of what a turtle has." Well, he's like, "Yeah, that's that." Yes, that's exactly right.
1: <laughs> and the thing I like about this one is that the things that make it weird make it more normal compared to the rest of life, like the rest of animals. Yeah, <laughs> like it's... yeah. it's only weird for a Sicilian <laughs> yes, because exactly. Sicilians are bizarre. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's a weird Sicilian in that it's more recognizable and looks more like the rest of amphibians. <laughs> yes. <laughs> cool. Also, for any of our listeners who have been sitting through this entire
0: news story quoting the Princess Bride in their head, me too, but I think I made that joke the last time we talked about
1: Sicilian, so I I neglected to make it this
0: time uh, on purpose.
1: (laughs) My next bit of news is also about an odd group within a group, diving birds. Sure. This research was looking at diving birds and found different evolutionary trends among diving birds that show diving behavior various degrees- And as many of the news articles were putting out, higher rates of extinction. Hmm. This is research by Joshua Tyler and Jane Younger in the Proceedings of the Royal Society B. And the article is by Jake Bueller in Science News. So diving, as in diving into the water, is not, you know, unknown among birds, but it is fairly uncommon compared to the diversity of birds. Right. Most birds don't do that. Yes. Mostly it's found within the water birds, the acorla which includes your your birds like penguins and cormorants and a few others. And you see three main diving strategies, and this research looked at these strategies compared to non-diving birds. Wing-propelled, which is using your wings underwater to swim after stuff, penguins and ox. Yep. Foot-propelled, so kicking. Loons, grebes, cormorants, all of these use that style. Sure. This is also how, like, ducks will swim. Yeah, exactly. You have a lot of diving ducks that will kick with their feet. And then plunge diving, so that you're going from air yeah, to the water. Like gannets. Gannets Just and pelicans do this. Straight out of the sky. So they wanted to know basically what's going on with these groups. Has it evolved multiple times? Are these styles distinct from each other? Is the plunge diving an intermediate between aerial and underwater? Oh, sure. Behavior? Yeah, yeah. Like, is that a. Do we see that as the common beforehand to fully diving birds, and so they looked at the evolutionary history of diving birds with an analysis of 727 water bird species across 11 groups, and they divided them into the non-diving birds or one of those three styles, and they showed a number of interesting things. First, that it seems diving behavior has been acquired, evolved 14 times independently, with all three different styles of diving seeming to have evolved independently on their own in different groups, with no evidence that plunge diving seems to be an intermediate evolutionary behavior, that we don't see, that there's signs that the ancestors likely of fully diving birds were plunge diving birds necessarily. And they found an interesting trend in that this seems to be an irreversible evolutionary trend. There were no signs of any group that lost diving behavior, that went away from diving to non-diving behavior. They called it an evolutionary ratchet, hmm. that as you become more specialized for diving, it seems that there is not at least any case of a group evolving back from that and going away from diving, that it may kind of lock you into that lifestyle. They also found body mass is typically higher among diving birds. Makes sense. With wing diving birds, the heaviest, so penguins in your wing swimming ones, the foot Divers, the next heaviest, and then non-diving and plunge diving, having similar weight categories at the smaller end. That doesn't surprise me. Those are the flyers. Absolutely. The interesting part for me is that, like foot divers, often are still flighted. That's true. Yeah, that is that is a good point. But they just have a average slightly higher body weight. Hmm. They also found a distinct difference in diversification rates between diving and non-diving lineages noting that some of the diving lineages are prone to extinction compared to non-diving birds. Many of these showed, and it's not a huge number, but 0.02 more species extinctions per millions of years versus new species arising. So it's not a ridiculous amount. Right, but it it does mean more extinction than new species origination. For each species that is coming about, there are slightly more going extinct right on average on average and they said that it was roughly uh, depending on which technique they gave, they used or which result they got either 75 or 32% of the 236 diving species showed this trend gotcha so, so a good
0: portion of them are showing slightly elevated rates of extinction yeah
1: either a third or the majority right and the, they noted that the ones that the birds that don't show diving had a 0.1 more new species per million year versus extinction. So it's not a huge... Interesting, though. ...difference, but there is a notable higher speciation rate in non-diving birds and a higher extinction rate in diving birds. Hmm. And they said that the fact that they found that there doesn't seem to be any case of reversing diving behavior could very likely be the cause of this disparity in that once you get stuck in a diving lifestyle, it's really great for diving... But if whatever habitat or ecosystem or prey or whatever it is that your diving relies on changes, you don't have any options other than to still keep diving. Right. There's no out. Yeah. I, either you, it's, it's
0: not easy to evolve a new strategy or at least not quickly and efficiently enough to outrun the environmental change. Exactly. So that
1: diving may be a much more specialized and niche locked Behavior A little bit of a dead end evolutionarily. Than we had previously
0: realized or thought. Which is really interesting because when we think about, you know, a quote dead end life strategy or something for organisms, we often sort of frame that as like, this was a bad idea to go in this direction. But obviously diving birds, that's not a bad idea. That is an extremely winning strategy. Mm -hmm. But at at least seemingly from this research once that's the strategy, you're kind of locked into that. And if the environment changes, there there may not
1: be an opportunity to adapt out of that. Yes. And they know that this is very important knowledge for nowadays. Because bird extinctions are a thing. Yep. That many of these groups are in danger today yep. and we are changing the environment faster than it normally would be changing. So this might give us a indication of which groups to keep a closer eye on that might already be more prone to extinction just because of how they live and now we are putting them in more danger yes just like uh with that primate cousins study
0: identifying the trends in how different groups of life and different lifestyles react to changing environments precisely very interesting. Sad, you know, because of all the dead birds. Yeah. But, and actually, uh, speaking of dead birds, <laughs> this wasn't on purpose, but my last, the last bit of news is actually about dead birds. Just uh, like
1: ones you found?
0: Well, yeah, these are just, I'm just going to list off a few. This is Toby. Where, did, <laughs> all these, where the, the, did you get all these dead birds, David? In the parking lot. Uh, no, 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 these are ancient dead birds. Now, while your previous study was examining the trends in which birds go extinct, Uh, potentially. This is research looking at some already long dead birds and uh, examining what happened to them after they died. Okay. Uh, That's right. This is a taphonomy study. Cool. Uh, Taphonomy study of fossils in the Jehol biota, which is very cool. This is research by Yen Zhao et al. in Frontiers in Earth Science. And we will link in the episode blog post to a uh, press release through Eureka Alert. All the way back in episode 152, uh, we talked a whole bunch about the Jehol biota, which is a series of fossil deposits in China from the early Cretaceous, which is globally renowned for exceptional preservation of fossils. This study is a taphonomic study. Taphonomy, we've mentioned before, is the study of understanding how things become fossilized. That basically every step from death to discovery... Like, what happened to this thing to produce the fossil we got in the
1: end? Yeah, the, why does the fossil we have look and feel and behave, you know, chemically the way it is? Yes. The Jehol biota is a very interesting place to study taphonomy,
0: partially because it has such good preservation that it's a handy place to examine why things become preserved that well, but also because not all the preservation in the Jehol biota is the same, and that becomes a highlight of this particular study. The researchers examined five different specimens of an early bird named Sapiornis, all five of which are complete skeletons and articulated, which means that all the joints are in the right place and it, it is in the shape of the bird skeleton.
1: Man, it's how many fossil sites can you go and be like, I want to study a number of fossils. Please make sure they're all complete. <laughs> all complete and, and articulated. Yeah, like just, oh okay, yeah, here's a selection. Just give me your best ones. <laughs> give me your top five complete and
0: articulated <laughs> Sapiornis fossils. Uh, these are all housed at the Shandong Tianyu Museum of Natural History, and the researchers observed right away that one of them, uh, specimen STM fifteen thirty six, that one, that's the yeah, that's you got to watch out for that one, <laughs> is clearly different from the others, including the fact that it features a complete set of well preserved feathers. Oh, okay. In addition to the skeleton. So they did a bunch of chemical analyses to try to see what they could learn about the conditions of preservation in this fossil compared to the others. Now, we don't talk a whole lot about taphonomy in detail on the podcast, so I'm going to take this opportunity to dive just a little bit deeper than we normally would into just the examples of the isotopic analyses they did, because this is really cool stuff. So they tested the isotopes of certain elements, so certain forms of different elements, in the sediment surrounding the fossil. And they found a whole bunch of neat stuff. So they looked at the ratios of carbon to nitrogen and the ratios of carbon 12 to carbon 13, which will differ depending on where the carbon was coming from.
1: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm.
0: We've talked about this a bit with plant stuff, where you can tell C4 plants versus C3 plants. In this case, they found that the other four fossils... The carbon ratios indicated that the organic matter was coming from algae. Okay. Whereas the unique one, 1536, uh, the organic matter linked to terrestrial plants. So it seems to have been buried with land plants instead of buried amongst a bunch of algae. Huh. They also looked at ratios of strontium, copper, and rubidium. These are things we never get to talk about. Uh, These can indicate climate conditions. So strontium, as the, the paper explains, strontium deposition is lower in warm and humid conditions compared to copper. Rubidium is more stable in sediment during weathering. So the more humid it is, the more weathering you have, the higher rubidium you're going to have sticking around in the sediment versus strontium. So these ratios can give a sense of what the climate conditions were. And they found indications of warmer and more humid conditions, higher copper and rubidium compared to strontium. They also looked at zircon versus rubidium ratios, which can indicate what kind of minerals are present in the sediment. The Zircon is common in more coarse-grained minerals, whereas rubidium is more common in finer sediments like clay. And they found uh, evidence of more coarse-grained sediment compared to the other uh, fossils that they compared this to, which Will's making a face at me because, uh-huh. yeah, that's not what you would expect. Typically, well-preserved fossils are found in clay minerals, very yeah. fine-grained minerals. Weird. Um, this specimen has, seems to have the coarsest minerals of these five specimens they compared. And then one more thing, they also looked at, uh, and this is a term I've not heard before, redox-sensitive trace elements. And we're taking you back to chemistry class. Uh, these are elements that are... Put very simply, influenced by oxygen levels. Yep. So in this case, they looked at uranium, thorium, molybdenum, nickel, and copper. Elements that never get shout-outs on this podcast. (laughs) And they found high amounts of elements in the sediment that deposit that you'd expect to see in the sediment in low oxygen. Anoxia. They also found some elemental signatures suggesting high sulfide. Okay. So high sulfur, low oxygen, which are conditions that not only are known to help with fossil preservation, because that means that decomposers and scavengers are having trouble down there, but also these are found in typically deeper waters. Yes. So we've got warm and humid, we've got terrestrial plants, we've got deeper waters, we've got coarse grains. All this together, the researchers suggest that what likely seems to have happened is that this particular bird was brought into a relatively deep portion of a lake By a rain flow that carried a bunch of debris from the land.
1: Mm -hmm. Land
0: plants and coarser grains and then buried it quickly deep in a lake. Which seems to be different from the other fossils, which maybe were just buried in the lake or maybe buried in the shallower parts Mm -hmm. of the lake. This is a neat case where not only do they have all this super cool chemical evidence of the conditions that may have led to the burial of this fossil but also evidence of differential preservation with different styles of burial and preservation between very similar fossils of the same species.
1: Yeah, well, the, it's, the things that are so interesting about taphonomy studies like this is that they they not only give us info of like, all right, what kind of environment were you fossilized in and the conditions that you were fossilized in, you know, which is very similar to like looking at the sediment to figure out was this a lake, was it... We're getting parts of that info of confirming, yep, this sure does seem like you were buried in one of the lakes in this area that we know were in this area. Mm -hmm. But also, it just screams to me that these ridiculously well-preserved fossils are not always just a luck thing of this one happened to stay together throughout time. It was fossilized in a different way to others of its kind Mm -hmm. that may be a big reason why we have feathers on it and not on the other. Like, yeah, it is, uh, an indication of how varied the fossilization process can be and how that can completely change your results for the same animal. Yes. And that's, that's huge. Uh, that just, that makes me appreciate the bias in the fossil record even more so that you're also dealing with the st- statistics of just what the circumstances are in the same environment for the same species. Mm hmm but were you did you get washed in from land or did you fall in the water cuz that's different that, and that
0: might have an effect on how it's preserved <laughs> yeah so yeah t- taphonomy is just this incredibly deep well of fascinating questions we don't have answers to
1: <laughs> it it is definitely one
0: of the most sherlocky parts of of paleontology well and it it's super i think there is something really fascinating and wonderful about the process of measuring a bunch of trace elements and then going, yeah, the a, a rainstorm mm-hmm. washed this animal into the middle of a lake with a bunch of plants and buried it down deep in the bottom of a lake. And like I understand scientifically where all of that information comes from, but it absolutely feels Sherlockian. Yes. Where you go, yes, I see that there's zircon and there's copper and there's a high carbon to nitrogen ratio therefore Mm -hmm. all of this nonsense that is basically magic well it's it's those that's a very satisfying process to be able to do
1: it's those logic puzzles i don't (laughs) know if anyone else did these uh i used to do them back in school all the time in in focus class where it's the grids of crossing names and things. and
0: and this person is two rows over from this person and this person's mom works in this job but nobody
1: works in that job and also
0: lives in that house
1: yes those things Mm -hmm. where it's just as important what you can determine about Certain parts of it as what you can determine is not the case yes for the and that's very much what this is is like we determine that these things are true, and some of these can only overlap in certain scenarios we can think of mm-hmm. to have land plants and deep water right like, and core sediment that sounds like a land environment got washed into a deep water lake environment like right, so it's it's a very cool you're having to take all the parts and then overlap them. And the overlay gives you the closest answer. Yeah. So to all of you uh,
0: prospective paleontologists out there, uh, taphonomy. Yeah. Do more of that. We're not going to do more of it. Mm -mm. Nope. Um, But we encourage you to do it. And then we will geek out over your cool stuff. Yes. Hey, speaking about geeking out over cool stuff. That, I guess yeah, no, that works. That, uh, works that works. Hey, it, uh, that's the end of the news. So it's time for us to move into the main discussion. Uh like we said at the top of this episode, it is our Darwin Day episode for the year, which means we're going to spend the whole rest of the episode talking mostly about one person and that person is renowned legendary paleo artist Charles R Knight. Stay tuned. Uh this is going to be a lot of fun. Yes. In our previous Darwin Day episodes, we have focused on historical figures whose main claims to fame tend to be their discoveries or their research or things that they dug up out of the ground, stuff like that. This episode's featured figure, Charles R. Knight, is most famous for his paleo art. Mm. In fact, he, he might be the most famous person who is most famous for their paleo art. This is a big name when it comes to the realm of prehistoric illustration now immediate detour uh what's paleo art yes we did a whole episode about paleo art episode 64 where we were joined by special guest and also paleo artist extraordinaire gabriel Ugeto. Mm-hmm. very cool episode check that out if you haven't already but in brief paleo art is the art of depicting fossil organisms yes Any artwork, paintings, sculptures, uh, whatever it may be, trying to depict what ancient animals, plants, etc.
1: looked like when they were alive. Yeah, because they are in the unique situation where that's the only way to get images of them. Because if you take a picture of them, they're they're dead bones. Those are bones. (laughs) So paleo art is our only way to visualize what these would have looked like while breathing.
0: Uh, Paleo art is a type of art, but it is also very scientific. Mm-hmm. Right? Generally speaking, paleo art is very much tied to science. The goal, there is paleo art that is more whimsical or fantastical. You, yes. you can you can do that with ancient animals. But generally when we're talking about paleo art, we are thinking of the goal being to accurately depict ancient organisms. It's meant to be a, a form of scientific illustration. Yes. And so paleo art exists in this fascinating overlap between art and science, yeah,
1: where you can, you can have just art of prehistoric creatures, but paleo art is this this right. category typically when it's referred to.
0: And paleo art is such a major, important part of paleontology. Like you were just saying, well, that is the only way we have to not only to v- visualize ancient organisms, but specifically to communicate those visualizations with each other. Yes. And we said this in our paleo art episode. Imagine paleontology without art. Yeah. Of like if if the only way anyone had ever seen a Triceratops was just the skeleton,
1: which is impressive and awesome. That and is very cool. Fascinating, but that is so not what the mental image is for so many people. Right. Paleo art is an immensely important
0: part of how scientists communicate with each other and of how we communicate outside of science and of how people just come to understand
1: the subjects of paleontology and connect with it, you know, because now now it feels real. It is not an abstract creature that is now just bones. You can see a picture of what that creature may have looked like. Yes. So
0: paleo art is this integral piece of paleontology and these days uh, in particular in, in sort of our modern era of paleontology it is very common for there to be people who are both researchers and artists and for there to be people who aren't artists but who are researchers working alongside dedicated paleo artists sometimes for museum displays sometimes just for like a new study yeah you know, I, we we named a new species, we will hire somebody to do artwork of this species because that's such a valuable piece of understanding and communicating paleontology.
1: Yeah, very often when a new species like press release comes out, that art that goes with it was they went to someone and said, hey, could you please yes. <laughs> make art of this <laughs> new species so we
0: can post it? Paleo art has, uh, depending on your definitions, a deep history. Art of ancient animals goes back quite a long ways. That's something people have been doing for a long, long time. Uh, people have been p- uh, doing art of ancient animals since before some of those animals were ancient. <laughs> uh, we, we are very uh, artistic species. The term paleo art was not actually introduced until, if I remember right, the 1980s. But similar sort of scientific ancient art, uh, art uh, associated with paleontology became more common and more scientific throughout the 1800s. As paleontology itself became more of a well-defined field, there are plenty of examples from this time period of sketches and paintings and sculptures, sometimes for scientists to communicate their own ideas, sometimes to communicate them to the public. Some scientists would do their own artwork uh, just to try to visualize things. There are things like the famous Crystal Palace dinosaurs. That is a version of paleo art reconstructing. Uh, these were sculptures. These were models of ancient animals. The what I have seen referred to as the classic period of paleo art begins around the end of the 19th century, late 1800s into the early 1900s. This is a time where there we we are seeing a growing knowledge and understanding of fossils, growing interest in communicating this with the public, and a growing desire for accuracy. In the kind of artwork we use to do this. This classic period, sort of this early 1900s, a number of big names associated with this time period, names you may have heard like Zallinger, Burian, Harder, Heilman, but arguably there is one huge name in the classic period of paleo, paleo art, and that is Charles R. Knight. Yep. Charles R. Knight was the biggest name in paleo art in the early 1900s. I... Uh, In some ways, he was almost the only name in paleo art at the level that he was doing it, especially early on. He did paintings and sculptures for many major museums and zoos and magazines and all sorts of stuff. You, dear listener, have almost certainly seen some Charles R. Knight. If you're listening to this podcast, there is a very good chance you have seen some of the artwork of Charles R. Knight. Uh, If you've gone Googling... For certain ancient animals, especially the famous ones like dinosaurs, famous Ice Age creatures, you've probably seen his paintings. Yep. If you have been to the Smithsonian, the Field Museum, the Los Angeles County Museum, the American Museum in New York, or any number of other museums, you have probably seen his art. Not only was he a very prolific artist, he was because of his position as such a key figure in early paleo art history, he was enormously influential. He was, I have seen him uh, uh, cited as the first artist to depict dinosaurs as active animals. Yep, yep, yep. His style influenced tons of artists who came after him, even those in some unexpected places, which we'll get into a little later. (laughs) And he also set in stone, so to speak, A bunch of the most famous tropes in paleontology depictions, like the image that you might have in your head of Brontosaurus in a swamp, that was popularized by night. The showdown between Tyrannosaurus and Triceratops, that was popularized by night. The the reason we think of that as the classic showdown is because this guy did it. Yes. This was a hugely influential person. Uh, Famous paleontologist Stephen Jay Gould, Uh, has been quoted as saying that Knight established the image of the dinosaur for professionals and amateurs alike, and that he had as much influence in paleontology as any scientist on Earth.
1: Which, yeah, I I would not disagree with that statement.
0: There was a quote, I actually pulled this quote from the Wikipedia, uh, from a paper in 2005 that says, there was scarcely a dinosaur book published in the first 60 years of the 20th century that did not include examples of Knight's work. Yeah. This is a big, this is a big deal. One of the books uh, about Charles R. Knight is sitting on this table right in front of me. (laughs) I have a book, Charles R. Knight, The Artist Who Saw Through Time by Richard Milner. It's a very cool book. It's Full of art. It's big. It's it's art book size. It's a coffee table. <laughs> yep. Uh, so when Melissa, I saw Melissa's request for this episode, and I went, "Oh ho!" ho I, I happen to have a source for this. <laughs> uh, there's also a bunch of great online resources, which go to the blog post. Those will be linked. Uh, there's some interviews. There is a website, CharlesKnight.com. Uh, which is managed and facilitated and, and upkept by his granddaughter. Oh cool. Rhoda, who is still around and she'll she does interviews, uh, she's quoted a bunch in this book.
1: Yeah. She
0: has declared herself the keeper of his legacy.
1: That that's cool. That's always very cool when that when Yeah a legacy does get cherished that way mm-hmm. by someone who had a connection to that person. Yeah. Yeah. That's very this cool. This
0: book, The Artist Who Saw Through Time starts with a one-page, basically a little letter by Rhoda about her grandfather. Uh, Toppy. She called him Toppy. Uh, yep. Uh, Speaking of cute things, let's start at the beginning with baby Charles. <laughs> uh, let's go all the way to the start before, you know, and, and we'll, we'll follow him through his life. Charles R. Knight was born in Brooklyn, New York on October 21st, 1874. So let's set the stage here. 1874, this is not long after Darwin started his biggest publications. or this is 15 years after The Origin of Species. We are smack in the heat of the Bone Wars. (laughs) Episode 58, right? Marsh and Cope are out doing shenanigans across the country paleontology is on the rise especially in North America mm-hmm, right? mm-hmm. more paleontology is being done than ever before some of the most famous dinosaurs uh, in, known are being named while Knight is going through his child years but at this time artwork and museum displays were not a particularly common thing for paleontology and this is sort of the, the realm that Charles R. Knight is born into young Charles from what I've been reading about him had a passion for nature uh, like a lot of people who get into the science Uh, when he was young his father took him hiking and fishing uh, gave him books to read in this book there is a little anecdote that I assume is from uh, Knight's Knight wrote part of an autobiography one one assumes this is where that came from gotcha gotcha Uh, the story goes that uh, when he was very little his father would read him stories and one night little Charles said Father, I'm tired of hearing about Jesus. Tell me about elephants. <laughs> Which I, I feel like there's probably a lot of people who can relate to that sentiment. Of all right, listen, I know you're into this thing. You want to keep reading me, but please tell me about this cool nature thing. Yes, at least tonight. Yep. <laughs> also, his father uh, would take him on trips. Uh, there were uh, he was uh, there were zoos back then. The Central Park Zoo was around. I think, uh, I don't have the dates in my head, but around his youth is when the Bronx Zoo was opened. Oh, wow. And his father would take him on trips to the American Museum of Natural History, which is the museum uh, in Manhattan, New York, Charles's Childhood Museum, the same as my childhood museum, Yep. the AMNH in New York City. His father's employer uh, was a major benefactor of the museum. Okay. Uh, so th- they got special access to the museum, uh, even backstage. By the way, just because this is going to happen a lot throughout this episode, that benefactor was J.P. Morgan. Uh, the wow. J.P. Morgan. <laughs>
1: <laughs> wow. Uh, yeah, you, that's going to happen a bunch in this episode. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to mention names that are... <laughs> this is like when they do shows of historical people and they're like... Let's throw some other historical people. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Oh, you have to. You you simply must meet Thomas. (laughs) Yes. (laughs)
0: Charles began drawing as a very young kid. He eventually was educated in numerous institutions, including Brooklyn Polytechnic Institute. And by age 12, he was studying at the Metropolitan Art School located in the basement of the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Nice. That's the Met uh, (laughs) for my fellow New York enthusiasts. Uh, the earliest known drawing of his, apparently, is a sketch of the family dog
1: Aww. that he
0: made when he was 12. Uh, and if I'm reading the picture in this book correctly, the dog's name was Lou. <laughs> I could be wrong, but that's what it looks like in the, <laughs> in the thing. <laughs> Cute. Now, before we move away from his childhood, there is a very important point uh, that needs to be made about Charles R. Knight. Knight was born with nearsightedness and astigmatism. Okay. He had poor vision. When he was six years old, uh, one of his playmates threw a rock and hit him in the eye, and he suffered severe corneal damage, the end result of which was that for most of his life, Charles R. Knight was legally blind. Wow. Now, legally blind, uh, for anybody out there uh, who would like a little more in-depth on that, blind is not one thing. There's Mm -mm. different degrees of blindness, so to speak. Legally blind tends to just mean that a person is considered Visually impaired enough that laws come into play, yeah, that you shouldn't be driving or you know, operating heavy equipment,
1: things like that. Yeah, that at enough of a distance you cannot perceive things well enough, right, for us to consider certain acts safe. <laughs> uh, one thing I read online where I was double
0: checking the definition is that you know, when you do the eye chart, yeah, uh, and the top row is that giant letter E. If you can't see that, you're legally blind. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. <laughs> that might not be the technical definition of it, but, but that there you go. Gets you the idea. <laughs> um, this w- renowned, prolific artist, whose claim to fame, among other things, was drawing things from life, yes, like exactly. the family dog, was legally blind. He wore thick glasses, and he painted with his good eye Inches from the canvas. Wow. That's how this artist did all of his work. Preposterous. Knight left home and began his art career around the age of 16. His first real job, uh, he worked for J&R Lamb, which was a church decorating firm. He would create cartoon animals and plants that would then go onto stained glass windows. Yeah. In churches. Later on, uh, he would do illustrations for children's books and magazines, uh, notably McClure's magazines. During this time, he reportedly met people such as Rudyard Kipling and <laughs> Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Because, like I said, this is the, we're, we're in the turn of the century. Yep. Uh, during these years, he also made frequent visits to the Central Park Zoo, the Bronx Zoo, and the AMH, the Museum of Natural History. He loved observing and sketching animals. He loved hanging out in the taxidermy department of the museum. This is a thing that eventually became one of his sort of iconic techniques. Knight desired very strongly to sketch from life. Yes. He, in fact, there were are, are anecdotes of him refusing to draw from photographs. Uh, people would say, can you draw this animal? And he'd go, well, I got to go find one. Yeah. I have to go somewhere and I will see that animal. He would go to the zoos. He would find his favorites. I've heard, I've seen, I've read reports of him hunting for excellent specimens to draw, like going to different zoos and stuff to try to find like really interesting examples of different animals Yeah, that he then wanted to sketch. Over the course of his life, he would do, this book said nearly a thousand drawings, artworks of living animals sketched with them in front of him.
1: That's so Well, and that makes me think, because uh, I've heard this comparison made very often when like the first time we get, you know, a, a certain species shows up in a documentary where it's like, even if we had images or like a, you know, like a dead body of like a giant squid, mm-hmm. that that there, there is something fundamentally different of filming it in motion yes. while it was alive. That's just different. It's hard to explain what it is, but there is a difference. It's cool that. He evidently, oh yeah, was caught on that difference. I remember uh, something that my
0: art teacher taught me. I feel like I've said this on on the podcast before. Uh, one of the th- uh, a a single line of lesson that I remember learning from my art teacher in ninth grade, Mr. Hunter, who said, "You think you know what a hand looks like? Yes, <laughs> yes." And that's in my head forever because yep. he's absolutely right. I cannot draw a hand from memory. I don't actually know what a hand looks like. Yep. He would go out to look at these animals, uh, and, and also, especially on his visits to the museum, he sought to understand their anatomy. He he would, in the taxidermy department, look into their musculature, the way that their bodies were structured. He wanted to understand as best as possible these animals, to depict them as accurately as possible.
1: That was something that struck me flipping through the book, was these, these anima- anatomical drawings that, Felt like they came out of a recent textbook, like Mm -hmm. these very technical, very accurate, very detailed drawings of the internal anatomy and how it translated to the outside view. Yes.
0: Uh, Knight would become well known for his ability to not only do sort of uh, photorealistic-ish animal drawings, but to capture the personality of the animal in the drawing. From some of his writings, it sounds like he was of a mentality of every time you're drawing an animal, you're drawing an individual.
1: Yeah. Like,
0: this is an individual animal. Yeah. In 1894, uh, while hanging out around the Museum of Natural History, Knight became aware that Dr. Jacob Wartman from the Fossil Department was looking for an artist to produce a lifelike art piece depicting a certain ancient animal. Uh, This was Elotherium which we know today is Intellidon. Cool. The Hell Pig. Yeah. Uh, Knight met with him, studied the bones, talked to the scientist, and ended up making a watercolor of this ancient pig-like creature. This is the uh, piece of art that we used as the teaser image for this episode. This is Knight's first paleo art. 1894, the first time uh, he was commissioned to do... I I assume he was paid. Maybe he wasn't. He was asked to do a lifelike reconstruction of this animal. Good one to start with. And it's a great one to start (laughs) with. And as you can imagine from there, he gained further attention. Soon afterwards, he was introduced to a man named Henry Fairfield Osborne dark clouds (laughs) cover the sky and a crow caws ominously in the distance. Henry Fairfield, Henry Fairfield Osborne. uh, So this majorly influential paleontologist uh, in around this time in the early history of North American paleontology. uh, This is the guy that started the department of vertebrate paleontology at the American museum of natural history. This is the person who, was a major part in starting the trend of putting fossils on display. Yeah. He also made a bunch of influential discoveries. He was a very important figure in early paleontology. He was also a eugenicist. Yep. And I believe a racist, which tends to go hand in hand with eugenicist. And also from a number of accounts, just a real big jerk.
1: Well, then He became the Green Goblin. Then <laughs> he becomes a green goblin. Instance, it's yeah, a real, bridge. it's a real problem.
0: <laughs> so Osborne's name, it intrinsically, he's popped up before in our episodes. We talk, we mentioned him in the Bone Wars, for example. His name pops up a bunch, for better or worse. He is sort of tied to this early period uh, in North American
1: paleontology because he was extremely influential in that early history. Yes, that doesn't mean he was a good person, right? Henry Fairfield Osborne,
0: the large igneous province of early North American paleontology, (laughs) met with Charles R. Knight. And around this time, Osborne had this dream of creating visually interesting uh, paleontology exhibits, which, believe it or not, was a controversial idea at this time. Uh, This was something that a lot of scientists were kind of opposed to. Uh, If I remember correctly, Marsh, uh, Othniel Charles Marsh, other famed... Uh, early paleontologists, for better and worse, didn't like this idea. Uh, fossils were stored in the back of the museum where scientists could research them. A lot of notable figures thought it was just it was a silly notion to put them on display.
1: Which is just a, a great lesson that people will find a reason to be against basically anything. Like <laughs> anything that's a good that seems like an obvious idea nowadays. Someone was not happy with oh, it sure. when it was first brought and up.
0: Lots of people weren't happy with it, uh, which is very funny because it it's. So important.
1: Oh, it's like, like paleontology nowadays, without that, I can't fathom how it would function. No. Like, it, it, that's so critical. Th- that is how we get information out to the public Yes, in large part. It's how we get support. It's how we <laughs> how we even communicate to other people. <laughs> like, discoveries have been made in displays by other scientists yes. observing that display. So Osborne, very presciently
0: to his credit, put together a team. Including William Diller Matthew and Charles R. Knight. Knight's job was to help plan out lifelike poses for the skeletons to go on display. Gotcha. And he was hired to paint murals of the ancient life,
1: which is very much like the historical museum exhibit. Like that's the the old yes things in the Fernbanker. That skeleton, big picture, yeah. and skeleton that's still the picture. case yeah. in a lot of places. During this process, uh, he
0: learned about the fossils. Right? Just like with the modern animals, he dove into learning their skeletal anatomy, getting a sense of what they were like. He learned how paleontologists studied fossils. Osborne introduced him to his friend, Edward Drinker Cope, uh, who a very important <laughs> influential figure in early paleontology, for better or worse. Uh, Knight spent some time with Cope becoming you know besties and learning all about how paleontologists do their paleontology. During his work at the American Museum of Natural History, his murals that he created here include some of his most famous pieces of artwork that he's ever done. Images of Dimetrodon, uh, Smilodon, this picture of Smilodon on the cover of this book, which, listeners, you've probably seen. It will almost certainly be in the blog post. It's the Smilodon on the little rock outcrop roaring out into the landscape. Uh, his famous leaping laylaps, yes. art with the small dinosaurs, Dryptosaurus, now uh, jumping on each other. One of the first pieces of artwork to depict small dinosaurs as active and and agile or in in motion. And that one picture of Brontosaurus in a swamp.
1: Yeah,
0: Th- that one picture will also be in the blog post uh, created for his time at the AMNH. So he went from drawing animal cartoons and sketching in his own time to doing one fateful reconstruction of a hell pig, to helping design what would go on to be one of the most famous, popular, and influential museum displays, uh, halls of displays, in the history of North America, including the skeletons and the murals themselves. And this was just the beginning. (laughs) From here, Knight would go on to become a much sought after, and extremely prolific paleo artist. And we will go into more of his incredible works after the break. Stay tuned for that. Yeah. From those beginnings in the 1890s, Knight went on to do a whole lot more stuff. Paleo art, also other art. He continued to do artwork of modern animals. He would do his own sketches. He would be commissioned to do these. And he did ancient creatures. He did museum work. At the AMNH, other things he would end up doing. He did murals for the Hall of the Age of Man. So these included, you know, ancient human evolution stuff. He did a mural depicting the Blackfoot Native American story of the moon goddess. For the Hayden Planetarium oh, wow. at the museum, uh, commissioned by Charles Hayden <laughs> of the, the Hayden Planetarium. <laughs> uh, he did sculptures for the Bronx Zoo, which I believe are still there.
1: Oh, right. Uh,
0: notably, he did two life-sized African elephant head sculpts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, which I think, I, I, I believe they're still there. I don't have reason to think that they're not. He also was commissioned to do works for the U.S. Fish Commission, the U.S. Bureau of Fisheries, He did murals for the Los Angeles County Museum, which included images of Archaeopteryx and Pteranodon, among others. He did murals for the La Brea Tar Pits, including, you know, your famous Ice Age things. He also frequently uh, did art for magazines, including plenty for National Geographic. Nice. Over the decades, he was the go-to paleo art guy. He was not the only person to do paleo art in these early days. Like I said, there were others, uh, n- some notable names like Zallinger and Burian, who followed sort of after him a little bit. But this guy, this was the guy for paleo art. During this time that he was doing all these works, he also refined his techniques. Uh, and here's a thing that Will will quite enjoy. When creating artwork of ancient life, when he would do dinosaurs and stuff, what he would do is he would make small models of the skeletons and then put clay on them to fill out muscles and skin and stuff to make a full 3D fleshed out little model, little sculpture. Yeah. And then he would take that outside to see how the light interacted with it. And then he would draw based on that.
1: Oh, cool. He would
0: make his own animal to be what he needed to draw. And then just like he did with modern animals, he would sketch it. From what he saw.
1: That's cool. Well, that's also, that makes me happy because it's like, you weren't doing claymation. You weren't right. m- moving it. <laughs> but you were doing the first step. <laughs> like, yeah. that would eventually be how we put dinosaurs and stuff to film.
0: Yep. Early. ah For large murals. So some of the artwork that he did was huge. Uh, and I assume that for some of those, he just painted a giant picture. Yes. But in some cases, at least, he would paint a small version and then a team of people would copy it onto sort of the big the big wall version. Uh, And he would might he might go up to do little touch ups and sort of fix it up. This guy who couldn't see. Yeah. Uh, There was a story uh, in this book where I think he was at the museum at some point and he was working on something and somebody else came in and like added something to an exhibit. And asked him, like, hey, does that look straight to you? Or does that, does that look right to you? And he was like several feet away and said, I couldn't possibly see that from here. <laughs> like, this guy was severely visually challenged. Like yes. This guy had very poor vision. And yet uh, all of these murals and such. Oh, wow. In the 1920s, he was commissioned to do one of his most famous projects uh, that he ever did. He was brought on to do a series of 28 murals, wow, for the Field Museum in Chicago. That first series he was hired on to do at the American Museum in New York, they wanted to do their fossil halls, and they wanted him to adorn their fossil halls with all these different pictures. The Field Museum was doing very much the same thing. They wanted to do, here is life through time, we where just all of our fossils, our understanding of the history of the Earth, And they wanted him to do murals across these halls and across time. He did 28 murals. He spent four years working on this, starting way back in the Proterozoic, all the way up to the Pleistocene with Ice Age uh, organisms. One of the cool things he did in this uh, series is that the further back in time the images, he made the paintings hazier.
1: Oh, and cool. then they become
0: clearer and more in focus as you get closer and closer to the present.
1: Oh, that's awesome, which is a
0: very cool thing to do artistically.
1: Oh wow. yeah, he did
0: that in the 1920s.
1: <laughs> that's so cool. that's yeah uh, this,
0: this is a pretty cool guy. <laughs> that's yep, nope, I like that. Uh, there are artists out there who are like, yeah, of course, well, we're impressed yep, yep, yep. <laughs> this series for the Field Museum includes some more of his most iconic pieces. He did more dinosaurs. He did Apatosaurus, Stegosaurus protoceratops. He did mammal art, including things like ground sloths and mammoths and ewentotheres. But perhaps most famously, possibly the most famous piece of art he ever did, this series includes a mural of Tyrannosaurus rex facing off against Triceratops possibly the most influential piece of artwork that he did when it comes to public perception of dinosaurs. That face-off is the classic clash of dinosaurs. Yeah. And this guy, hes the, he set that trend. Yeah. Um, I saw a quote from, I think this was this book, it was in something, that said of the mural, it is so well-loved that it has become the standard encounter for portraying the age of dinosaurs.
1: Yep. Yeah.
0: So when we talk about influence, not only influence on scientific work and influence on public education, just p- putting images directly into people's minds. Yeah. Uh, this it makes me think of when we've talked about Jurassic Park and how Jurassic Park was so influential that basically every movie or TV show depicting dinosaurs since Jurassic Park has followed the Jurassic Park style and tropes. Yep. Knight was doing that in the early 1900s yes he set the trends for the next century of paleontology
1: art which is is so fascinating to see the origin of things that now are still being affected by that 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 influence that or yeah. that, that that original art piece and also uh, uh, an important thing which I we talked a bunch about in the paleo art episode of like that's why that perception is so common. Yes, is because of this extremely famous, talented artist. It is not that every paleontologist is gung ho on portraying T. Rex fighting Triceratops, right? But that just that culturally became the iconic view.
0: Yeah. Well, and it it's so iconic that it's the kind of thing that just seems obvious. Mm-hmm. It makes me think of when I remember when I learned that the phrase "make him an offer he can't refuse" was from something. Yeah. Uh, I, I, one day I, my, I was in college or something when I was like, that's not just a, like a, just a cultural saying that's from the Godfather. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that that was from something. I thought that was just a, built into our culture. Yes. Yeah. T-Rex versus Triceratops. That's from something. Yes. All this and, and many, many more. He did tons and tons of work, but he also uh, did stuff beyond just his paleo artwork and his artistic work in general. He also did a bunch of lecturing, oh, cool. uh, so he would teach people about art and, and paleontology. Uh, he wrote and illustrated four books, plus an unfinished autobiography. These books include uh, some of his advice for artists. I actually own one of these books. I picked one up at, I think I picked it up at the American Museum a number of years ago, which is drawing animals for artists, something something like that. Uh, Which is a book about how to draw animals by Charles R. Knight. His advice. I can't check the title for you right now because I don't have the book in front of me. Because I have actually lent it to our friend Jenna. Yes. Who is an artist. Because I'm not an artist. But I thought (laughs) she would enjoy it. And in his writings, uh, I think we get some really cool insights into his mentality and personality as an artist. So I'm going to open up this book and read just a couple of things that I have marked out to share here. Also, uh, for anybody who's concerned, when I say marked out, I mean like I noted it in my notes. Go to this page and read this thing. I did not make a mark on the page. This page also has a crocodile yeah, it, uh, yeah. Which is so that's pretty cool. Alligator? Yeah, I think it's an that's alligator. That's an alligator. Yep. Yep. I'm sick. Cut that part out. <laughs> Edit it out. <clears throat> in animal drawing, that's what it's called, animal drawing, here is what Knight says about what it takes to... Draw an animal. <clears throat> the artist must examine not only the anatomy, but also the mental traits of an animal before he can properly represent a lifelike attitude in either action or relaxation. The artist must also study the actual appearance of a three-dimensional object with all, with all its diversified planes, light and shade effects, color pattern and skin embellishments, hair, feathers, scales, etc., as the case may be. They must also study the environment of all the creatures and their psychology and mode of existence in a state of nature. In this way, the artist will, it is hoped, be better able to grasp the outstanding characteristics of the models, their beauty, virility, and charm, and the splendid opportunities which they offer for every sort of artistic expression. To depict adequately the superb lines and color of the big cats, the grace and agility of a deer, the ponderous power of an elephant, or the exquisite and dainty form of a bird, this is by no means an easy accomplishment. Everything that you possess in the way of artistic perception must be consecrated to that end.
1: Oh, that's such a that's such a great way to describe
0: it. <laughs> and it's a very academic take in the environment, take in their psychology. He calls it their psychology, which mm-hmm. is very cool get into the mind of the animal understand how they're feeling what they need what they do how they exist in their environment the whole picture so to speak
1: yeah well it's cool to hear from one of the most famous people to have drawn animals is that he's saying it this is a difficult thing like it takes effort and immediately it was bringing to mind just images and i'm not criticizing any of the artists who produced any of that, but like cartoons which will show like a camel or something or a, a certain animal and I will see it immediately go that's not how that that is not how a camel moves right. this or is behaves. A, this
0: is a cartoonish depiction yeah. of this animal.
1: And I'll see that in video games a lot of the time where it's like mm-hmm. alright th- you made it look right on the outside but that's not at all how it that's not how they move or run. Sure. Or like you did not capture it internally or behaviorally because that's hard to do. Yeah. And so it's cool hearing him acknowledge that's like you really do have to look at each part as those separate facets. Yeah. And it gives
0: some insights into how he did these very individualized sketches of animals. It also gives us a little bit of insight, I think, into his personality. Like this, this guy took this seriously. Yeah. For, and I mean, this was his job. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He was a freelance artist for most of his life. Taking commission, like his seriousness and talent is what made him who he was. Yes. With this in mind of getting insights into his personality, on the very next page, there's another little excerpt uh, from the same book that I think also gives us a wonderful insight into uh, this person. Uh, This is a section on what he has to say about sketching in public. (laughs) You must become reconciled to the fact that anyone drawing in a public place is an absolute lodestone. Most persons are attracted to such a one-man exhibition in a most surprising degree, Almost all of these you will find are merely curious and politely interested, but others take advantage of one's helplessness to impress one with the fact that a certain mythical cousin who never took a lesson in her life can <laughs> sit right down and draw a perfect portrait of anyone in five minutes. I've always wanted to meet that gifted relative. <laughs> <laughs> I think one of the things that comes out when I was reading a lot of his sort of his writings and his quotes, this was a very talented, very serious person. He was also a sassy fella. Oh man, I love it. So this this I, I get the impression this guy was full of personality.
1: Oh, that's fantastic, and and <laughs> I, I just I so know the kind of person. <laughs>
0: he's oh, absolutely! Referencing. It's it's funny because to take advantage of one's helplessness. Oh, uh, yep. Is a I've not used that exact phrasing, but that we have had conversations mm-hmm. where we've described the people who will get really chatty with the people at the front desk
1: at the museum. Yep. It's anyone who's worked <laughs> with a public-facing job knows exactly what he's talking right. about. It's you can't leave, and I, I have a story to tell. Yep, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic.
0: In addition to his writings, his artwork, uh, apparently there were also some things that he never got to. Some really cool things that uh, didn't happen, which I think are also really interesting insights uh, into his life. Uh, George Kunz, the person who hired him originally to do the Field Museum project, had expressed his plans to do a Charles Knight museum. Oh, wow. A whole museum dedicated to Charles Knight. Um, But sadly, he passed uh, before he could make that happen. Somewhat similarly, Knight also wanted to create a dinosaur theme park in Florida Ah. with full-scale, lifelike dinosaur sculptures uh, that he sadly never got to make a reality. However, his friends who he had shared this idea with, Louis Paul Jonas and Barnum Brown, (laughs) yeah, that Barnum Brown, (laughs) Uh, did, uh, after he had passed away, create the Sinclair Dinoland exhibit at the 1964 New York World's Fair, which did have these big dinosaur sculptures in the spirit of what Knight had kind of envisioned for his theme park.
1: Oh, that's
0: cool. Uh, Knight also apparently planned to do a dinosaur fountain for Central Park. Which didn't happen. Which might be the the biggest shame on here for like me personally. Man, that that's such a small seeming thing. But oh, that would be so cool. That oh, I would take all my friends yeah. to see the dinosaur fountain at Central Park.
1: Well, now I'm sad. <laughs> right now, I want a
0: dinosaur <laughs> fountain in Central Park. <laughs> so he was an ambitious person. He did a lot of really cool stuff. Now at this point, uh, in our lauding. Of this person, one of the things we do whenever we talk about a personal figure and we talk about a, a person who was great and did lots of great things, it is always important for us to remember that these people are only human. Yes, uh, we don't want to, you know, put someone too high up on on a pedestal.
1: Yeah, that this was this was just the artist to beat all artists, who was also a wonderful person who right, did I, everything I, amazingly well all the time. Right. <laughs> yeah, Knight was a human being,
0: uh, and to drive that point home. Uh, some of his personal stuff and also uh, some things where he wasn't the best about stuff. Uh, now, I will say I did not see any talk of, like, scandalous things. Whew. Uh, which actually does kind of set him apart from yeah. a lot of the people we've talked about yeah. in our historical figure episodes. I, I did not find uh, an example of him being, like, horribly racist or something. Yeah. Uh, I mean, he was, a uh, you know, uh, a white man from new york in the early 1900s it would not surprise me if he had some viewpoints oh yes that you know we would not find i did notice while i was reading those quotes that th- his default pronoun that he would use for the artist was he mm-hmm. but the mythical relative who supposedly could draw without any lessons was a her No, oh, yeah i did notice that just now i'm not saying that that means he was a sexist yeah um but there were conventions of the time, and oh, I'm yeah. sure he fell into those. Given things. the day and age, probably a little bit, you know, <laughs> right? <laughs> Just statistically uh, speaking. But as far as I'm aware, he would listen. He was no Henry Fairfield Osborne.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so by that metric, although
0: he was good chums with both Osborne and Cope, so I know when you were talking about, about that part, he certainly
1: kept uh, company. I was like in the Charles Sarnight Knight movie. This will be when his his edgy bad boy period when he's <laughs> hanging out with the wrong crowd. Yeah, he's
0: he's under a bed. Influence. <laughs> he is blowing up fossils. <laughs> um, let's zero in on some places. I, I think perhaps the most st- evident failing is kind of a harsh word for this, is that a lot of Knight's work is outdated. Yes. Uh, that's largely not his fault. No. Uh, he, he lived a long time ago. But a lot of his artwork, when we look at it now, is not uh, up to modern scientific standards. He's got his sauropods stomping around in swamps and rivers. His dinosaurs tend to drag their tails. The, the two-legged ones tend to stand up in kangaroo stance. Uh, his tyrannosaurs, his uh, duck bills. He also would sometimes, a few instances, depict dinosaurs in grassy landscapes. Yep, yep, yep. Uh, which we now know is not a thing that happened. In some of his writings, he describes dinos as, quote, I think this was from Wikipedia, this quote, "slow-moving dunces." Yeah, yeah, (laughs) which is a very old-fashioned way of thinking about them. Um, Although he did depict small dinosaurs sometimes as being more active, like those leaping laylaps. Yep. Um, I've also seen it pointed out that some of his dinosaur restorations are uh, questioned by some. Even by their own of the time standards, in terms of certain proportions, yeah, 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 of like the hips or the limbs and things like that. So he was not perfect and flawless. There are certainly flaws to be found in his artwork. A lot of which come from just being uh, at a time where we didn't know the answers to those questions. Yeah, well, I mean,
1: a lot of those, not, you know, not maybe not the specific things like grass or like uh, uh, thinking they were slow moving, but those kinds of you know uh, uh, criticisms of his art. Mm-hmm. are criticisms that will likely happen to almost every piece of paleo art as time goes on. Sure. One made today as accurate as it can be <laughs> in a century. Right. <laughs> Someone will look at it and go, what? what were you doing? What?
0: How did they you know, even have that idea? And it's very easy for us to say, well, that sort of was a thing of the time. Mm-hmm. It was actually pretty common to think that and to depict things that way. And that is totally fair, but it is also fair to say that one of the big reasons why it was common to depict animals that way is because Knight did it. Yes. (laughs) Much like our discussion about Jurassic Park, the mistakes that they made in Jurassic Park have become common misconceptions about dinosaurs. The things that Knight did wrong, whether they knew that at the time or not became trends yeah. in paleo art because people saw
1: him do it and he was the guy. Well, and will still be referenced today that way. Absolutely. Like, if, like you said, if you Google, you know, a Apatosaurus, one of the first images that will come up is the sauropods in the swamp. Absolutely. So you will still get that perpetuated day of like, okay, but I just found a picture of them in the swamp. Right. Even though you just said they didn't do that. So yeah, but that's the most famous picture. And yeah. it's the reason... You're asking that question. Yeah, it's the reason
0: you know what Brontosaurus is.
1: Yeah, it's, <laughs> because
0: That's why happened. we're
1: having this discussion is that picture you just brought me. Which is always a
0: double-edged sword yes. when it comes to things like this. that yep. Popularity is great because it gets that idea out there and it influences people. Uh, I've also seen the point made that his accurate depictions influence not only the public but scientists mm-hmm. and how scientists mm-hmm. think about it. Also, his inaccurate depictions. Yes. Um, I've heard the point made that there probably is at least some truth to the idea that the reason scientists held on, for example, to the sauropods and swamps idea for so long was because it had become the way that we depicted it. Yep. Scientists also grew up with that image in their heads, even before they became scientists. So this, this kind of work can have really extensive influences in all spheres, well, scientific and otherwise.
1: Well, because, like, popularity is is so crucial to gaining the movement for something. You know, mm-hmm. popu- uh, the public support and bringing new people into the science by exposing them to it when they might not have gone into the back of a museum Uh, But also, mistakes and misconceptions are long-lived and hard to kill. Yep. Especially catchy ones. Yes. So when you do make a popular thing that has mistakes in it, it, even if that's just a minor fraction, Mm -hmm. those are going to stick around as long, if not longer sometimes, as the good stuff that was promoted by that popularity.
0: So there were certainly things to be critiqued to some degree about his art. I also found one study that was sort a publication that was reviewing some of his artwork and other artists of the time that pointed out that some of the ways he, uh, he did at least some art of native americans mm-hmm, like that mm-hmm. one for the hayden planetarium and this write up was discussing how there are certain trends in how he depicted native americans that fit into common trends of the time, that might not quite be the way that we'd prefer it today.
1: Yep, uh, I was wondering when you mentioned that.
0: Ranging from, you know, on the one hand, maybe leaning a little too hard on primitive yes. culture, but also romanticization. Yes. So, kind of misrepresentation of cultures in one way or the other. That That's like
1: caricature- style of representing uh, those people so there are certainly things to critique uh in his art moving on moving to his you know
0: more just his personal life uh charles knight was also apparently terrible with money <laughs> he refused to join the museum staffs he was a freelancer uh, for a long long time apparently he was poor a lot uh rhoda his uh granddaughter who i mentioned earlier Recalls that his wife had to give him one dollar bills if he was going to the store. If you gave him a five or a ten, he would put it on the counter and leave without noticing whether he had change coming. <laughs> There's also an anecdote in the book about how he—I don't remember the details—he was convinced to invest a bunch of money into something that I don't think it turned out to be a scam, but it turned out to just be a misguided, yeah, a wash, like some political thing. <laughs> Like, apparently he had a really hard time with money. Is he is he also the origin of the starving artist trope? <laughs> this was the guy. He starved and then all the other artists decided to starve. Uh no, probably not. That's
1: that's very funny.
0: Uh also he was in the habit of writing angry letters to magazine editors. <laughs> There's a bunch of those quoted in this book. He would, you'll like this, he would write uh scathing letters criticizing bad animal depictions
1: <laughs>
0: so like animal art or fake animal stories mm-hmm. he would write in letters to be like that's bad art or that's f- that, that story is made up Like he didn't like I think there's a line in this book about how he didn't like a cutesy animal depictions just for entertainment purposes <laughs> oh boy do I relate <laughs> How yeah, many of those he, posts have come across my Facebook feed? Yeah, he man, this guy would have been on Twitter. Oh yeah, constantly just railing on all these. He that would have is, the, just the dodo. That is not every day. what. A, yes,
1: exactly, that is <laughs> not what a happy alligator looks like. Yes, yeah, he uh, would write
0: into the letter uh, to the editors. Also, he apparently had very strong feelings about modern art. Interesting. He was not a fan. Huh. So when modern, which I I as. To the little that I understand about art history, that does not really surprising. Yeah, right. modern art as a movement was resisted, I think, by a lot of the old guard. I
1: mean, it, to my like uh, once again, I am talking completely from from a, from a place but, of not
0: knowing anything, of,
1: of zero knowledge. <laughs> but like, the modern art in, is very much departing from classical art. Like that's why we have distinct names for them. Yes. So if you were at all a classical artist, it doesn't surprise me that you were not a fan of the modern art. So he, he apparently had done some writings. I don't know if these were
0: like necessarily all letters to editors. They may have been his personal writings as well, where he, you know, poo pooed, uh, these, newfangled modern artists with names like Duchamp and Matisse and Picasso, <laughs> uh, who he was
1: not a fan of. <laughs> it's, it, he sounds like he is being horribly rude in so many of these examples, but I, I so want to read all of them. And They're in the book. You yep, can absolutely. Yep. there's a bunch of
0: them in here. Um, it, it sounds to me like he was a, uh, if we're being a generous, a charmingly grumpy dude. Yep, yep. Uh, very opinionated. And, and you know what? He was an extremely talented artist. He was legally blind. <laughs> he was always poor. <laughs> I'm not saying his grumpiness wasn't unearned. Yeah, yep, yep. yep. <laughs> I get it. Uh, but yeah, he apparently would write grumpy letters and he had very strong opinions about stuff. That's so funny. <laughs> Speaking of his personal life, uh, Charles R. Knight also had a family mm-hmm. in 1900. Uh, the year 1900, he had married uh, his wife, Annie Humphrey Hardcastle. Cool that, name. Which cool name. Also, there's something very nice about Knight and Hardcastle. Right? That's pretty cool. Those go together, I say. <laughs> it was a match. <laughs> yeah, that, it was perfect. <laughs> he and Annie eventually had a daughter named Lucy. Uh, Annie and Lucy, uh, though they do not get quite the acclaim. Uh, certainly that Knight does, and indeed, very little airtime in this episode. Uh, But they were apparently very helpful uh, and important in supporting him, uh, helping him with money, (laughs) helping him to get jobs. Like, they would talk to people. Like, uh, Annie corresponded with Henry Fairfield Osborne on occasion to, like, argue on behalf of Charles when, like, they were arguing about a commission or something. Cool. Uh, There was a story, there's an anecdote in the book that when Knight initially went to Chicago, I think this was for the big field museum project. Um, Initially he met with like the board for the museum and it didn't go well. Like they didn't like some of the things he was planning to do. So he went back home. And then uh, as the story goes, Lucy, his daughter went to Chicago to go yell at those guys <laughs> and convince them <laughs> to let uh, Knight do what he wanted to do with the artwork. <laughs> so his wife and daughter were apparently very integral parts of his success.
1: Man, I want to see this movie. <laughs>
0: yeah, uh, it probably be probably pretty be good. great. Later in his life, as he, he did less and less of his artwork, uh, he spent time with his two grandchildren. One of whom was his granddaughter, who I've already mentioned, uh, Rhoda Steele Colt. At least that's her name now. Mm -hmm. Uh, Like I said, Rhoda. To this day, a lot of the information we know about Knight comes from interviews uh, with her. She's quoted in this book a whole bunch. As I mentioned, she called him Toppy. Mm -hmm. It sounds like Lucy also called him that. I think that was just his nickname. Yeah. So in his later, as he got older in his later years, he became a grandpa, and he spent a bunch of time with Rhoda. Uh, presumably both of his grandkids, and Rhoda recalls that when she was really little, he would take her to the zoos and to the museum, and he would take her behind the scenes and instill in her this interest in natural history. Cool. The final series that he did uh, in the mid-1940s was a, a series of 24 small paintings for the Los Angeles County Museum, and then in 1951... He did a mural for the Everhart Museum in Scranton, Pennsylvania. It was a mural depicting a Devonian forest, and this was his last uh, piece of artwork that he did in his professional career. Wow. Later in life, sadly, his eyes continued to get worse. He had numerous surgeries, uh, and eventually, it sounds like he stepped away from his work because he couldn't do it anymore. no. Reportedly, uh, he fell into a depression. Uh, Rhoda said that his greatest fear had been losing the little sight he had. Uh, And he finally passed away on April 15th, 1953, at 79 years old, after a long and very productive life. According to this book, The Artist Who Saw Through Time, his last words were, don't let anything happen to my drawings. Wow. And to the credit of his family, his legacy preserves yeah uh like i said rhoda has continued to talk about him and participate in projects uh there have been a number of different museums that have put on galleries and presentations at least one touring exhibit i think in 2003 about charles knight uh there have been restorations and releases of older restorations of older work and then releases of unreleased work there have been books about him, like this book that I have here. Uh, he, he has continued to be this figure, um, and that has largely been a product of the people today who really appreciate the work he did, and his granddaughter, uh, and his family, who sort of continued his legacy as time went on. And of course, while we're talking about Legacy, Knight, as we've been saying the whole time, was immensely influential. If you go around and talk to paleo artists today and you ask who their inspirations were, you will hear the name Charles Knight. Uh, That was one of the people that Gabriel mentioned in our paleo art episode as an inspiration. He inspired and influenced other artists, scientists, people to get interested in paleontology. Even his influence extends to places you might not immediately think about. His dinosaur depictions worthy inspiration for the dinosaurs in the original Lost World Mm -hmm. and the original King Kong. He is cited by name by people like Willis O'Brien, who did the animation for King Kong in the Lost World, and Ray Harryhausen. (sighs) Harry, there's actually, I've seen a couple of quotes from Harryhausen specifically talking about like his mom gave him a book or or no, he took him to, uh, I think, the L.A. Museum And he saw the murals that Knight had done, and that was his introduction to this idea of reconstructing these kinds of animals. Uh, Harryhausen apparently has said that uh, one of Knight's well-known pieces of artwork was of a a specific, well-known, I think a famous gorilla, Mm -hmm. which is what Harryhausen says inspired him to do Mighty Joe Young.
1: Oh, wow, yeah.
0: Knight, when we talk about Knight influencing paleo art, movie dinosaurs and beyond emerged largely from Knight's work. Yeah. Like his work inspired the most famous classic dinosaurs in film and then onward.
1: Well, I, and I don't know that there is a direct connection that, that I, I haven't ever heard this quoted, but going through the book, something I just noticed is a bunch of them are very reminiscent in how the Creatures were designed in the Fantasia. Uh, yep, that's another yep. one. Yep, absolutely. Like, the there's one image of a Mosasaur, a Tylosaurus, I think, that mm-hmm. has a back fin. Yeah, it's got that fin along yep. the back, yep. Which is identical to how they drew them in yes. a Fantasia and uh, the Rite of Spring section. Like, if you
0: scroll through a bunch of Knight's artwork and just look at his repertoire of art, which you can do on the Charles Knight uh, website which will be linked in the in the blog post, and then go watch the Lost World or mm-hmm. go watch the original King Kong. You will see his dinosaurs. Yep. there they are. That's how they are depicted.
1: Yeah. Well, and and he he just I, like, I don't want to say the gold standard, but like just early early on in the history of paleo art set a gold standard for not just specifically how to portray them, but how to go about bringing a dead animal to life yes
0: and this is when you mentioned earlier uh the link to claymation mm-hmm, that he was mm-hmm. making clay models yeah he actually did have a sort yeah. of direct link to claymation that is how those early filmmakers were doing
1: it well and it's like a lot of the descriptions for what makes knight's art so so monumental and, and inspiring and beautiful are very similar things that I've heard described for Harryhausen's animation mm-hmm. in that he had a talent for bringing life and breath and personality yes to these clay figures that he was animating. Yes. And I've seen the same thing about uh O'Brien, mm-hmm. Willis mm-hmm. O'Brien, cuz they'd put little
0: expressions on the face, yeah. they'd have them move in interesting little ways. You could tell ways. what this clay
1: creature was thinking.
0: And I've seen a very similar thing said about the uh, artists who did Jurassic Park. Yep. Yep. Uh, about the little ways they put personality in there. That that was something Knight was really, really good at. Yeah. Uh, and it's something that sort of has been carried on in some of the most famous depictions of ancient life through history.
1: It's, it, it's many of the things that he worked into how he did art have become standard practice for how we attempt to do accurate portrayals and vivid portrayals of extinct organisms. Yes. And indeed, as I mentioned earlier, a
0: lot of Knight's work is still on display. hmm Yeah. A century later, a lot of his work, the, the Knight website, has a list of where you can see his artwork, uh, paintings, sculptures, etc. These include, just to list a bunch... Uh, the Mesa Southwest Museum in Arizona, the Museum at the Tar Pits, the Los Angeles County Museum, the Yale Peabody Museum, the Smithsonian, the Field Museum, the Florida Museum of Natural History, the Science Museum of Minnesota in St. Paul, the Carnegie Museum in Pittsburgh, the Academy of Natural Sciences in Philly, the Utah Museum in Blanding, apparently, Le Jardin des Plantes in Paris. Cool. Uh, somehow. He also was a, he was a big fan of plants. Oh, Big fan of botany. He used to go down to Florida, apparently, and like check out plants and then use those plants to put in his ancient artwork. Cool. The Museum for the Earth in Ithaca, the Staten Island Museum, the Bronx Zoo, and of course the American Museum of Natural History in New York City. If you get up there uh, or to any of those places, check it out. And of course, if you would like to see... A lot of night's uh, uh, work and learn more about him and follow some of these references. There'll be a bunch of images and a bunch of links in the blog post. I will end off with this quote from Stephen Jay Gould. Stephen Jay Gould, very famous paleontologist. I don't have a negative thing to say about Stephen Jay Gould, actually. <laughs> he wrote this in Wonderful Life Not since the Lord Himself showed His stuff to Ezekiel in the Valley of Dry Bones had anyone shown such grace and skill in the reconstruction of animals from disarticulated skeletons. Charles R. Knight, the most celebrated of artists in the reanimation of fossils, painted all the canonical figures of dinosaurs that fire our fear and imagination to this day. Yep. That is Stephen Jay Gould declaring that Charles R. Knight is the best person at this since
1: God. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's... it, It is supremely, well, it is so impressive the the effect he had, but also going through the book, you'll come across, you know, going through his art, you'll come across pieces where, it you know, it is out of date, T-Rex is standing wrong, sure. it's got too many fingers and stuff like that, but tons of times I'll also come across a piece of like, no, that's just Dimetrodon. Right. Like, <laughs> yeah, It's, it's a, sl- a mammoth. Yeah. That's what a mammoth looks like. It's slightly, you know, a, a little bit older looking in, in certain regards, but no, that's... You pretty much nailed it. Yeah. And that's so impressive. It It is not what we tend to think of when we think of early paleo art. Yeah. Well, and I think that's one of the reasons
0: why a lot of his stuff still gets used mm-hmm. and why he's still cited. And again, it's important to say he's not the only one... No. Uh, ...who was active around this time, whose artwork is still referenced uh, uh, and things like that. Uh, but he is the one that this episode is about. Yep. Um, and yeah, he did a really fantastic job such that uh, and especially uh, i have seen it cited that his favorite animals from when he was little and all throughout his life were lions and tigers and elephants yeah and i think it is no surprise that his saber-toothed cats and his mammoths and things like that really do stand the test of time in many ways yes
1: yeah it, it's it is impressive and and i oh, inspiring that that you can I, just the, the the passion flows off the page. It is very, very evident how much he loved it, but also how serious he took yes. portraying these creatures. Yeah, it's yeah. pretty cool. He uh,
0: uh I, I've said the word influential about 70 times yep. in this episode, but this this is a person who really did lay a big part of the foundation For not only paleo art as we know it, but paleontology.
1: Yeah, paleo communication.
0: Paleo communication, the place that paleontology has in our culture. Uh, If he hadn't been there, I'm sure other artists would have come in. They would do the same thing. But it is probably no exaggeration to say that if it weren't for Knight's work, paleontology would not be as it is today. Yeah. He was a big deal. He shaped Uh, the way we see it nowadays, he inspires us. To this day. (laughs) Um, We hope that you are inspired, dear listener. Like I said, check out the blog post. Look at some of these images uh, because you really, this, this is one of the episodes, I think, that suffers the most from being a purely audio (laughs) medium is that we can't be showing you these. (laughs) Uh, So check out those images, look at them while you listen to this episode. And since I am saying this at the end of the episode, restart the episode. And then while you listen the second time, uh, look at these pictures, (laughs) Uh, we will end our discussion about Charles R. Knight there before we finish up. There is one last thing to do. And that is a patron question. One of the things that our patrons get to do on our Patreon, in addition to all the other goodies that they get in exchange for supporting our science education efforts, is the ability to submit questions for us to answer right here on the podcast. Will,
1: what is today's patron question? Our question for this episode comes from Wendy, who asks, were all carnivorous dinosaurs bipedal? This is a
0: very good question. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, the short answer is, it sure seems so. Yep. Yep. That carnivorous dinosaurs tended to be the bipedal ones. Uh, this is, we often, when we talk about theropod dinosaurs, right, that's yep. the group that includes all of your Allosaurus and Spinosaurus and Tyrannosaurus and Velociraptor and all those. When we describe the theropod dinosaurs, the phrase we will often use is the two-legged, mostly carnivorous ones. Yep. Because they weren't all carnivorous. Uh, there are herbivorous biped dinosaurs, uh, theropod dinosaurs, in, in fact. There were ornithomimids and oviraptorosaurs, a lot of dinosaurs that are thought to have been herbivorous or potentially omnivorous. Obviously, there are lots of birds today that are herbivorous. There were also bipedal dinosaurs that weren't theropods, dinosaurs that spent a lot of time on two feet. A lot of the early dinosaurs were like that. Uh, some of the later dinosaurs, like hadrosaurs, which could stand on their hind legs, mm-hmm. they were herbivores. It has been suggested, based on some fossil evidence, that some herbivorous dinosaurs might have eaten meat occasionally, mm-hmm. which is something that I would be incredibly surprised if that never
1: happened. No, I mean, that's okay. super common among herbivores today. Like, yes. deer will eat meat. So it would be I'd be baffled if there weren't Ceratopsians. Right, with their big, my- heavy beaks. Yeah, like, what, they could eat whatever they wanted tr- if they really put their right. mind to it. Uh, there was that
0: study of the myosaur... I think it was Myasura uh, that was eating logs and it seems getting bugs and mm-hmm. maybe crustaceans and stuff with it. There's that one ankylosaur that is thought to have possibly had a fish in its guts. Yep, yep. So there were probably quadrupedal dinosaurs that ate meat occasionally yeah, or scavenged. Or, or scavenged. Yeah. But as far as we can tell, it seems that all of the dedicated carnivorous dinosaurs have been bipeds, yep, or at least predominantly bipeds. Because you do have things like Spinosaurus, which has kind of been discussed as to did it spend time on all fours or not. Um, As far as the evidence goes, these days I think it was not thought to have spent much, if any, time on all fours. Mm -hmm. Uh, And even to this day, uh, all birds are bipedal, including many of the carnivorous birds.
1: Which is a weird... Trend it it feels very similar to me bringing up Spinosaurus. The weird trend of non aquatic dinosaurs, right? That like we do have now literally less than a handful of dinosaurs that seem to be closely or somewhat closely tied to the water, Mm -hmm. but none of them seem to be just fully aquatic, you know, fully secondary, right? Like a sea turtle, exactly. So, like, that's another thing that just seems oddly uniform with dinosaurs. It also is a weird thing that predators seem to be walking on their back two legs.
0: And I think that sort of the, the t- more tempting explanation is that you need to walk on your back two legs in order to catch prey. Yeah. Which I think that that certainly helps, but that is certainly not true because we have tons of very successful quadrupedal uh, carnivores in the world today and all through time. Yep, yep. But I do wonder what evolutionary constraints there might have been. Is it just that, because we know herbivores can transition to carnivory, we've seen that happen uh, through evolutionary history, is there something about the herbivorous dinosaur lineages that made that just difficult Mm -hmm. for them to evolve? Is it that theropods had such a monopoly on the carnivorous niches
1: that the other lineages just never got the opportunity to evolve into that lifestyle? Or is dinosaur quadrupedalness, you know, four-legged movement, just not comparable to mammalian. So like Mm -hmm. a quadrupedal dog or cat, which is a four legged predator is just a completely different, you know, a a mobile mechanism compared to could, could a ceratopsian just not achieve the running or pouncing or, or something. Yeah. That just the way that it's like, we do have quadrupedal reptilian predators with crocs, but they're aquatic ambush predators. Right. And, throughout much of their history that's been the common with them which dinosaurs weren't doing right so is there just something about like they could not achieve the same movement right
0: or for was, some maybe reason. there was something with their digestive system yeah that like maybe they evolved this is kind of that dead end evolution yep, yep. the thing again did they evolve into a state where it just wasn't feasible yeah there was
1: just not an opportunity to add
0: meat to the menu anymore yeah so Wendy uh, fast it's it's a very simple question. And when I first saw it, I was like, oh, that's that's a really simple and quick. quick." But it's a simple question with a very fascinating and interesting discussion Mm -hmm. as an
1: answer to it. Because the why to that is so weird. (laughs) Because it's weird once you think about it. It does seem that by and large, all
0: carnivorous dinosaurs, at least dedicated carnivores, were bipeds. Mm -hmm. Do with that what you will, everybody. Hey, that's the end of this episode. We hope that everybody has had a good time. Uh, I had a great time. This is a super fun discussion. Yeah, Uh, I got to look at a bunch of art as usual. uh, Head on down to the episode description, and you will find all sorts of cool stuff. You'll find links to the blog post where you can look at more stuff. You'll find links to our social medias, our Discord. Uh, You could be. Uh, that, you know, maybe you'll be the next 100th member or something. <laughs> we got a f- Gmail address that you can send us emails to. We got a physical mailing address you could reach out to us there. Uh, check out, there will be a link to Discovering Us, which we mentioned at the top of the episode. We release episodes every fortnight. Every one. Every single one. Episode 159. Uh, is coming up next. It's it's the early part of a year, so we got a whole year's worth of more episodes to look forward to. Please stay tuned, uh, and and we'll we'll see you, we'll see you, we'll see you some more. See what's up next episode. Good night. That was a pun because <laughs> I, I get it. His name. Good
1: night because he was a good night. Listeners, good night. <laughs>